Welcome to We Go There. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... But hey, we go there. Because there's no such thing as having too much information when it comes to your health and wellness. We dive deep into topics, interview experts, and get answers you need. Because knowledge is power. And feeling empowered is what we're all about. So let's go there. So today I am sitting across from Dr. Rohan D'Souza. This is a very special interview. Dr. D'Souza is a very prominent researcher. He's an obstetrician, a professor with the departments of obstetrics and gynecology and health research methods, evidence and impact at McMaster University here in Hamilton, Canada. So he specializes in research focused on reducing pregnancy-related adverse events. He is really kind of a big deal, and I'm very humbled that you've made time to speak with us today. So thank you very much for being here, Dr. D'Souza. Thank you so much for your interest in our work, Nikki, and for inviting me to this uh, to this podcast. I'm very excited to dive in. So so just full disclosure here, I first heard of your work from a CBC News article, and I know this kind of blew up. <laughs> and the title of the article was Canada Significantly Undercounts Maternal Deaths and Doctors Are Sounding the Alarm. So it obviously got a lot of attention. Um, and this is, you know, can be an uncomfortable conversation, especially for anyone listening to this who might be currently pregnant themselves. But in the article, you cited the importance of better maternal health monitoring systems to prevent adverse events. And you also kind of said that Canada undercounts some of these maternal mortality rates. So I know we're we're starting off with some really you know, dark stuff, but it's not going to be like this the whole podcast, but I would love to just kind of talk about that because that is how I first learned of your work was through that article. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think we should begin by defining what pregnancy-related deaths really mean. Um, In many instances, when people talk about maternal mortality or pregnancy-related deaths, uh, they're only talking about deaths that occur when a person is pregnant, um, when a woman is pregnant. Um, but however, the implications of pregnancy on the life of um, uh, a pregnant woman or person last for a while longer than, than just the pregnancy. So it is important to count deaths even in the postpartum period uh, and include all of these under the umbrella of pregnancy-related deaths. And this is particularly important because deaths related to cardiac disease in pregnancy or to mental health conditions, that is deaths related to suicide, et cetera, tend not to happen very close to uh, uh, the immediate postpartum period. They can happen sometimes up to five, six, seven, eight months later. And we've got data from the UK and from the Netherlands now that show us that most of the deaths related to depression and suicide happen in the six months to 12 month period after the pregnancy. So um, when we're talking about pregnancy deaths, when I'm talking about pregnancy related deaths, I like to include deaths from the time of conception until one year after pregnancy. And this is not always counted. So that is one of the main reasons for undercounting. We're not counting the whole postpartum period. The other reason is because Sometimes deaths occur very, very early on in a pregnancy when when a person might not even know they are pregnant. So within the very few uh, weeks after pregnancy, uh, there are changes to the cardiac system, the hematologic system or the blood system. And this could put a person at increased risk 
of death from blood clots, for example. Um, so when these deaths are not counted as pregnancy deaths, it's because nobody knew that person was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so, so this undercounting is not deliberate. Nobody is trying to falsify information or conceal any information. Um, sometimes when a person dies, um, it's difficult to to ask the question about was this pregnant was this person pregnant in the last year um, or to 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 gain that information. So all of these things result in the vital statistics of countries undercounting deaths. This is not something that's unique to Canada. Very recently, there was um, a publication comparing maternal deaths in eight European countries, and in every single country, the vital statistics undercounts pregnancy-related deaths. But when you have an enhanced system of obstetric surveillance, which is what we are working on, um, these deaths are, many of these deaths are not missed. Mm. So that's, I mean, let's talk about that surveillance system. So what would, what, what could we and many other countries be doing better to support? And what I'm hearing is, especially in the postpartum period, because, you know, I'll be honest, <laughs> in full transparency, I have made many tongue-in-cheek content and reels on social media making fun of the fact that it's like you get all this prenatal attention and then it's pretty much six weeks you're all good here's the birth control prescription see you never <laughs> yes yes that is that is that's the unfortunate thing about most healthcare systems and that does need to change uh care in the postpartum period is 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 quite poor universally um, but talking about our obstetric survey systems i think the best way to to describe it is to describe uh, what happened in the United Kingdom. Um, in the UK, uh, in, 19, in the 1950s, they decided they wanted to do they undertake the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths. And this was because people were always worried about sharing information when someone died. They were worried about the privacy of the patient. They were worried about litigation. They were worried about blame. And so many of these things never got discussed. Um, but in the UK in the 1950s, they said, listen, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this in a confidential manner so people feel safe, because ultimately, if we don't know what caused it, these things are going to keep happening. Now, this graph here shows how after the confidential inquiries were established, the death rates dropped drastically. This is because by reviewing these cases and realizing that there were some patient-related factors, there were some systems-related factors, and there were some provider-related factors, there were delays in access to care, there were delays in, in diagnosing, there were delays in treatment, and these things were contributing to deaths. So without knowing, it would, be, would have been impossible to fix these things. So what the UK did is they established um, the confidential inquiries that happened every three years, and they still, they still happen. Um, and through these confidential inquiries, all the cases of maternal death are reviewed every three years. Um, the data presented are aggregate data. So there's no patient identifying information. There's no hospital identifying information. It's just geared towards finding out what went wrong in the country as a whole and what can be done to fix it. Um, so this system was, uh, was established in, in the 1950s and is still continuing. As you can see from this graph, these numbers have now come down. The deaths are very, very low. Uh, however, serious adverse events, um, which we call severe maternal morbidity, are still quite high. It is estimated that for every one person that dies in pregnancy, up to 85 to 100 nearly die. And these people we never hear about. 
So that's a big number, about 85 to 100 for every single person that dies, nearly dies in pregnancy. Um, what the UK did in 2005 was therefore to establish something called the United Kingdom Obstetric Surveillance System, or UCOS. Through this, what they said they would do was identify the leading causes of severe complications and begin to understand that better from the whole country. So in 2005, they began studying the condition called eclampsia, which is a condition uh, where a person begins to have seizures as a consequence of high blood pressure in pregnancy. And from their first report, they realized that um, the numbers of people having eclampsia was much higher than they thought. But what they realized was just like you said, people get excellent care during pregnancy, and then it is here's your baby, there's the door, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, most of the people that were having eclampsia were not having it during pregnancy, but they were having it soon after pregnancy. And they were not necessarily coming back to their midwives or to their obstetricians. They were having these conditions and going to family doctors nearby or to emergency rooms nearby. So the condition has not, the condition was still quite prevalent and was shockingly high numbers. Um, they were able to identify the reasons behind it and then put in some policies to see that this doesn't happen in the future. Because of the success of that, they have they continue to do this and they have now studied 61 different conditions in the UK. And uh, many other countries have begun to follow suit. So this obstetric survey system is not very complex. It's a very simple uh, process in which there is a strong emphasis on local reviews when something goes wrong. So if something has gone wrong in a certain hospital, we encourage that hospital to get to the bottom of what went wrong, to have a detailed review of, uh, of the condition, to identify whether there were delays in uh, accessing care, delays in diagnosis, delays in treatment, whether this was uh, modifiable or preventable, and to, because that is just good practice, reviewing what went wrong is just good practice. The, the next step is to have that information shared centrally in an anonymized fashion. So in the UK, there are 194 hospitals. Each one of these hospitals shares, sends this information to, this, to, to a central um, uh, repository in Oxford. And these cases are reviewed uh, anonymously. They are reviewed not with the intention of apportioning blame. They are reviewed with the intention of finding out what went wrong. And through this system of reporting and reviewing, uh, we are able to identify systems-related problems, provider-related problems, provide feedback, change guidelines, and then to re-audit to see whether all those things resulted in a reduction in those severe outcomes. Mm -hmm. So really, it's not a complicated process, but it's a very effective, effective one, which empowers people at the grassroots level to review their own cases. Um, and to provide information anonymously. This episode of the We Go There podcast is brought to you by The Bell Method, a fitness company that blends Pilates with pelvic health, creating choreography from science. You might feel overwhelmed at all the abs after baby programs promising to make you bounce back after birth. Or maybe you're feeling unsure of how to exercise in pregnancy and prepare your body for delivery. It can be tough to navigate what information is credible and evidence-based. Women deserve better. I created all of our programs with the guidance of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we continue to evolve our programming to stay current with the latest research. 
At The Bell Method, we ditch guilt and bring balance to our bodies with programs designed to fit your life stage. We'll help you reduce incontinence, diastasis recti, and prolapse so you feel strong, confident, and empowered throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I invite you to enjoy 10% off your first class session with the code WEGOTHERE10. Visit www.thebellmethod.com for more. So on that note regarding the prevalence, um, shockingly high, I think is the words that you used to describe it, of postpartum eclampsia, you know, what would be, you know, I don't know if you have, this gets this granular, but, you know, what would be an example of better care postpartum that could potentially reduce the incidence of this? Uh, so when I mentioned this, um, you know, um, it, it was in the in 2005 that they studied this in the UK. Um, it's so shockingly high is my 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 description of it. It may, may not be considered as as alarming by somebody else. But things that can be put in place is better control of blood pressure in the postpartum period. First of all, the awareness that eclampsia does not only happen during pregnancy; it can happen in the postpartum period, and so we need to be aware of it. Um, second. Um, when a person is being discharged in the postpartum period, sometimes the blood pressures tend to drop a little bit immediately after birth, but then they could begin to rise again between day three and day seven, sometimes even up to day 10. Um, in most Canadian settings, we would not keep a person in hospital for day five, day seven, and day 10. But just being aware that if somebody's blood pressure is high, we need to have some system in place to monitor this blood pressure once the person is discharged. You know those kind of those kind of um, uh, suggestions or recommendations uh, has resulted in in, in reduction of these uh, these numbers in different settings. Um, another thing is ensuring that the the pregnant person is educated about this. Your blood pressures might be a little low now, but you're not out of the woods yet. Uh, you need to have follow up with your midwife or your family doctor to see to see that your blood pressure is still under control, reminding them that symptoms of headaches or pain in the epigastrium or blurred vision or... The epigastrium? Sorry. Sorry. The, the, yeah, the, um, it, it, yeah, it's basically uh, the upper part of your tummy. So, so having pain in your um, you know, tummies, which, which is akin to heartburn, but not heartburn. Okay. Um, so those, those kind of symptoms... And symptoms of seeing flashing lights or blurred vision, they are not normal. They are not to be expected in the postpartum period. If you have these symptoms, you need to go back to your to your healthcare provider. Um, that kind of patient education makes a big difference. And then educating people in emergency departments that do not normally see this, that this is not just a seizure. It's not, this is not epilepsy. This is a pregnancy-related condition, and this is not treated with anti-epileptic medications. This is treated with a special type of uh, medication that is that is reserved for eclampsia. That kind of education is it, like it goes beyond just educating patients and the pregnancy care providers. You need to go beyond, um, but you don't know that until you've reviewed and 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 seen what the problems are. So these are some examples of how reviewing, understanding where the problem is can result in the development of targeted recommendations to improve care. This is powerful. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I almost want to ask you what the numbers were when you said shockingly high, but I think I'll move on to another question. Um, what, I, I, this is a bit uh, kind of unrelated, but I am just curious, what got you into this work? 
as someone who is so passionate about changing these these statistics, improving care? Yeah, I think it's my 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 entire journey when I started medicine. I trained in India initially. I was uh, and in India at the time when I was training, the incidence of pregnancy related deaths and morbidity was very very high. Um, many uh, births occurred at home, especially in rural settings, and people came into hospitals with complications. It was difficult to see people die or nearly die from conditions that are completely preventable. And I'm talking about blood pressure in pregnancy. I'm talking about severe bleeding uh, during childbirth. I'm talking about, about infections. Uh, these are things that we have solutions for. And we we saw, I saw a lot of young people um, die from these conditions that were preventable. And, and I also saw that in academic hospitals in India, by doing these reviews, local reviews, which we call the MNM rounds, the mortality and morbidity rounds, we were able to, I know, we were able to bring those those cases down. Um, we we sat as a group of of physicians and trainees and nurses and um, and and asked ourselves, what can we do better? Uh, we started uh, campaigns in the periphery, in the community. Uh, we empowered people in the community to to refer. Uh, cases if they thought something was not right. And uh, yeah, so that's, and when you begin to see a difference in these numbers from these simple interventions, you you get inspired to do more. Um, I went on to train in the UK after that. And in the UK, they have a very good system of, of reviewing cases of mortality and morbidity. And so when we did these morbidity and mortality rounds, we learned with every round, we were getting better at, at, uh, um, at reducing these events. Um, yeah, so when I moved to Canada, I was initially surprised to see that this was not done. Um, it's not done in many countries um, and, and definitely not in North America. Uh, so it just became it just became an obsession with me. I just felt because I had seen how it made a difference and and it was just hard to 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 see it not happen here. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How long have you been in Canada now? Uh, 12 years. Okay. So, I mean, you've been at this for a little while now in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Initially, I, I, I didn't spend all my time trying to do uh, mortality and morbidity reviews, I, I must admit. Uh, my my interest has always been in medical disorders in pregnancy and in, in caring for people with heart disease in pregnancy uh, and with certain other medical conditions. But that is also the population that has a high amount of, you know, morbidity and mortality. Um, I always worked in academic institutions and within academic institutions, we did review these cases. What I realized after moving out of one of the big academic institutions in Toronto to to Hamilton, that in different parts of the country, uh, the same things were happening. People were dying and nearly dying of the same conditions. And just having that information in an academic setting and not sharing it outside was of no use. I began to realize that sometimes it was the same condition that was affecting people in within the greater Toronto area, but people in hospital B didn't know what hospital A had put in place to prevent it from happening again. Yeah. So, so this is more, a, a, this is a new interest for me in the last four or five years where I've said, um, I, I'm trying to work on sharing this information so that we can, we can reduce this overall. 
and getting hospitals talking to each other. That's not I've I've heard that before from from uh, medical care providers that hospitals are kind of in silos. Yes, that is true, and there are very various reasons for that as well. And I, I think that is what I'm trying to trying to break right now. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> it's definitely necessary. Lexi here. Okay, so let's shift to another under the radar, not so hot topic for a minute. Body hair. Everyone's got it, but a lot of us want to live smoother. Am I right? 10 years ago, I started Wax On Laser and Wax Bar. Wax On isn't just any waxing and laser hair removal bar. We are the industry leader creating a safe space that inspires people to live confidently in their own skin. Over the years, we've developed trust. Trust that you know you're getting the best quality and comfortable experience every single time. Whatever you come to Wax On for, it's going to be awesome. We've created our own exclusive gold wax formula that's like no other. It's as pain-free and long-lasting as it gets, perfect for all your waxing needs. At WaxOn, we've invested in top-the-line laser technology that's effective on virtually any hair and skin tone for effective results on every body. Seriously. And we carry a carefully curated collection of products. Some we make ourselves, locally I might add, and some are from brands we've fallen in love with that adhere to our values and standards of clean, good for you, and female founded. If you haven't experienced Wax On, I invite you to enjoy 20% off your first service with code WEGOTHERE. Visit waxon.ca or download the mobile app to book in with code WEGOTHERE because there is such a thing as a better hair removal experience to help you live smoother. Um, so let's, this is another, we're shifting topics, but it's still somewhat related. I would like to speak to you about cesarean birth rates and the fact that they are increasing. And we know that they vary tremendously from provider to provider, hospital to hospital. But, you know, I guess as a two-part question, what's the current data? And, you know, if you could speak to that trend over time and what kind of impact do you believe this trend has on maternal health, sort of in the short term, but also in the long term, because we know, you know, I've heard it said, well, the age of a first time mother is increasing, body mass index is increasing, but, you know, and these could be related to the rates of higher cesarean birth, but, you know, isn't there potentially something else going on here? Perhaps that's a leading question, but (laughs) I'd love you to speak to that. That's a very loaded question as well. (laughs) And it's a very, very important one. Um, Yes, there is no doubt that cesarean section rates are increasing, uh, not just in Canada, not just in urban settings, but 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 everywhere. Um, uh, there was a there was a publication looking at uh, cesarean section rates uh, around the world, and the most dramatic increase actually is in North Africa. Um, so cesarean section rates are increasing uh, around the world, and there are many reasons for this. And you mentioned some of them. Um, there are a higher proportion of people that are coming into pregnancy with high-risk conditions. And uh, I'm not just talking about age and body mass index, but I'm talking about people with pre-existing high blood pressure, with heart disease in pregnancy, with kidney disorders. Uh, there are more and more people that are having are, are conceiving late, but also conceiving as a result of uh, IVF, in vitro fertilization, uh, more twins and higher order pregnancies. With all of these things happening, it is not and it's not surprising to see a higher uh, need for cesareans, but that is only one part of the uh, one part of the, the the whole the tip of the iceberg. Really, um, the number of indications for a first time cesarean is increasing, and 
um, there are more and more people that are uh, performing cesarean section for even uncomplicated twins, for example, because well, there is a risk with the birth of the second twin um, and, and, the, and sometimes the need to perform a cesarean section for the second baby. But some people are getting more and more risk averse. And I'm not just talking about healthcare professionals. I'm talking about families as well. They're getting more and more risk averse. And so um, the, the numbers of first time cesarean sections are increasing. Um, in the past, uh, Babies that were in the breech presentation used to be birthed vaginally, but that skill has been lost a long time ago now. And so if somebody has a baby in a breech presentation, few healthcare providers are able to try and turn the baby around um, when the person is still pregnant and then attempt a vaginal birth. But but most just resort to a cesarean. Now, when somebody has had a first-time cesarean, they are very likely to have a second uh, and subsequent cesareans. So, um, you know, all of these things are these are th these are just some of the things that that uh, are resulting in increased cesarean rates. Um, there is a decline in the use of instrumental uh, vaginal births, so especially a decline in the use of forceps or training and skills in the use of forceps births. So, if there is a need to do an emergency birth uh, in the second stage of labor or when a when a mother is pushing, um, and if you're not, if the provider is not comfortable doing forceps, then you end up with a cesarean. Uh, but these are these are some of the the clinical reasons. There is also a shift in in perceptions of risk or the willingness to take risks. And um, there are people that that approach healthcare providers saying, "Listen, I just don't want to take any risk with my birth. I'm not going to have another baby." or I just want a planned cesarean so that everything is under control. So there's this question of choice. Um, yeah, so a number of reasons there. I, I, it's interesting. I, I did. A, I told you before we started recording. Um, I interviewed Dr. Michael Klein, who is, you know, very much, you know, as you you know him for his research again. You know, basically showing episiotomies were, you know, not best practice for as it relates to reducing tearing and whatnot. And he he mentioned this idea that skills were being lost from a clinical perspective regarding breach vaginal delivery, forcep use. And I'm going to quote him. He said, if everything, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Hmm. So if the only tool you have to help somebody is a cesarean, you've lost the skill of breach and you've lost the skill of forcep. Is that problematic in your opinion? Oh, it certainly is. Um, but I don't know what the solution to this is. Um, you know, having done breech births, uh, which was the rule rather than the exception in, in India where I trained, we we didn't have the resources to to birth 3% of the population by cesarean. That, that's what the incidence of a breech, a breech presentation is. We just didn't have those kind of resources. Um, and, as, you know, I'm very comfortable doing breech births as, as are many people that have trained in, in other settings but having moved to Canada I've realized that it's not just the trainees that don't have the skills a lot of healthcare providers have lost the skills because uh, it's been since the 1990s now that people haven't been doing breech births um forceps again uh, in England we used a lot of forceps and our complication rates were very 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 low uh, but 
but it also depends on the skills and the, the amount of experience a person has with it. In Canada, uh, don't quote me on this one, but I've heard that on average, a trainee only does about eight forceps birds. Um, and in many centers, therefore, it's just been abandoned. They just don't know how to do it. The question is, how do you train an entire generation of people across such a big country to get mm-hmm. proficient with this? It's mm-hmm. not something that you can learn through simulation training. It mm-hmm. is, it's, it's, it's because every person's pelvis is different. The position of the baby's head is different. It's very nuanced. So unless you've got those skills, I, I don't know what the solution is. So you're right. Um, it's disturbing. It's that that these skills have been lost, but but I don't know what the solution is to try and, and regain them. I guess you'll have to come and start teaching more people. Are you going to start teaching everybody how to do a vaginal breech birth? You could go on a tour. Well, the problem is that babies tend to want to come at 3 a.m., right, and, uh, <laughs> in the morning. So how is everybody, how, how is how is it going to be possible for any trainer that signs up for this to just be available each time um, right. You know, yep. it, it's just hard. It's easy. On paper, it looks great. Yes, we need to increase training. And a lot of people are talking about it. But but the practicalities of it are just are just too too challenging. Yeah. Um and I so I I appreciate thank you for for your insight there. And I appreciate that, you know, you have you mentioned answers to this question regarding a clinical perspective, but also a cultural shift and a a you know, more wanting to reduce the perception of risk, you know, and just, you know, having something that's applied in cesarean. Do you, you know, can you speak to what you think the impact could be with this higher, and, and I'm not sure if you have more recent data, what is the um, current sort of trajectory or the current cesarean birth rate um, in Canada, for example? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer because it depends from site to site. Right. Uh, in an academic hospital where where you see for, where 40% of people seen are high risk pregnancies, the cesarean rates are going to be much higher. So it's an unfair, it's difficult to compare this across uh, the country. Um, but the, when, when you talk about impact, yes, there, there are short-term, long-term impacts to both mother and, and child. And one of the main impacts that, uh, that people forget about when decisions are being made at the time of birth, most people are only thinking about that birth and about the immediate consequences. But um, once you've had a cesarean, you're at a higher risk of needing a second cesarean. And with the more, the more the number of cesareans you have, there's a greater chance that the placenta might abnormally implant uh, and attach to that cesarean scar, resulting in a condition called placenta accreta. And, and this condition could result in a lot of bleeding during uh, pregnancy, during childbirth and sometimes require the removal of a uterus to to control bleeding. Uh, It it does affect um, the the person, not just through the entire reproductive lifespan, but beyond. Um, And and to babies as well, there have been a lot of studies showing how the passage through the birth canal um, is important in terms of the microbiome or the, 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 the good bacteria that babies acquire during that transit. And we are only beginning to understand right now the effect of a cesarean on the microbiome of the baby. And we still don't know too much about what the long-term consequences of that might be. Um, but we know that that um, there are consequences. 
there are consequences that we know about. There are consequences that we still don't know about. Um, and 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 therefore, um, just doing cesarean sections because we perceive the immediate risk to be slightly higher is um, is not the right way forward. However, everybody's risk. Uh, uh, tolerance is different. If I say that the risk of a complication is 2%, that might be very low for me, but that would be very high for you. And so it's important to respect uh, the wishes of a family or of a person having a baby uh, with regard to the mode of birth. I love that you said that. And I listened to your talk on the ARRIVE trial, which is a perfect segue, I think, for us to wrap up and go there. Um, and, and I love your very, it feels very balanced approach and, you know, just sharing the evidence, sharing the fact, but you do it in such a way that I think reduces the polarity of it. And so for anyone listening, the ARRIVE trial, I, I perhaps you can get into it a little bit, but I want to first say I acknowledge my bias towards fewer interventions around non-medically indicated inductions. So the ARRIVE trial was this large trial where, you know, the research were cu- researchers were curious to show, you know, does an elective induction at 39 weeks of pregnancy reduce the um, incident of a cesarean birth? And the trial, and please correct me once I'm done this little monologue here, if I got any of this wrong, but the trial did show that it did, in fact, reduce the cesarean in that particular study. But, (laughs) there's a big but, those findings have not been replicated in other trials. And you also spoke in your talk about like risks and values and a whole bunch of stuff. So I would love you to just sort of give us an overview of it and and your thoughts on it. Yeah, uh, that again is a topic that is really, really um, dear to my heart. And I share your bias of reducing interventions. And so uh, whatever I say, it might might sound, it, it comes from that, a conscious bias of of not wanting to have interventions when not necessary. Um, so the first thing to talk about is that what happens in a trial setting does not necessarily replicate into the real world setting. This trial was extremely well conducted. I must say uh, there are people that try to flaw the trial, that people that try to say things about the, the, the trial, but this trial didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of years and years of work. Um, and and was conducted really well. It was well-powered to study what they wanted to study. Um, many people think that the ARRIVE trial was done to see the effect on cesarean race. That was not really the intention. The intention was to see whether there was an improvement in neonatal outcomes from birthing a baby at 39 weeks versus later. And so that was the primary outcome, and the study was was powered to study that primary outcome. And they actually showed no difference. So the primary outcome of the study was there was no difference in neonatal outcomes, whether the baby, whether whether inductions were performed at 39 weeks or not, or managed expectantly. But the secondary outcome, which got everybody's attention, were two things. One was the cesarean rates, and the second was the rates of high blood pressure in pregnancy. Both these things were drastically reduced in um, in the people that had inductions at 39 weeks as opposed to not having inductions. But tens of thousands of people were first were approached, and of these, 6,000 agreed to participate in the trial. This is not uh, a representative sample. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not the real world setting. So it is within a select group of people. And the demographics of that group are also very different from what we see in different countries. For example, the average age of people recruited into the trial was much lower than they were 23 to 25 years. Many of our mothers are not um, of that age group. Um, many were had a body mass index above 30. And therefore, their baseline risk, their baseline chance of having high blood pressure was higher. And so that reduction that was seen was um, probably not true for somebody that didn't have a body mass index that that's high. So although on paper it was it was a low risk population that we were looking at, it's not a population that is representative of many, many other high income countries and certainly not low income countries. Um, when a trial is being conducted, uh, it, the protocols are very strict. You are committed to to that process. And so the protocols for induction of labor are really strict. The protocols for management of labor are very strict. And definitions of what constitutes a failed induction or a failed um, uh, failure to progress in labor and then goes on to have the person that goes on to have a cesarean, these things are very clearly defined. In the real world, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, units are very busy. Somebody comes back for a reassessment. They could be sitting for hours waiting for a reassessment. If you don't have these protocols in place, just starting the process of induction is inevitably going to result in a higher cesarean section rate. So if you if you want to see the benefit of induction, induction has to be done right. The definitions of when do I when do I um, say that this has failed and move on to a cesarean has to be really tight. And that doesn't happen in the real world. That's so, interesting. I love that you you mentioned. So it's what I heard there. I want to kind of extrapolate that was that induction in many cases could increase the cesarean if it's not in quotes done right. Absolutely. Uh, we're trying to look at how how inductions are being performed in and and the protocols vary from center to center and and how busy a unit is is a very big factor in in whether these assessments happen. Uh, appropriately at a given time. It's not anybody's fault. It's just the way it is. Uh, you know, when there's another emergency on the labor floor, you could, you know, all the care providers could be there for three and four hours. So the person that needs to be assessed has not been assessed. So if that person needed something, uh, a second agent to to expedite labor, it's not been done. And before you know it, it's 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours, and then everyone's fed up. Right. And And everyone just says, well, She's been in labor for so long. Well, she's not really. Um, we just didn't follow the, the the protocol because of a number of issues. So unless there is a real commitment to, to ensuring the success of a labor induction, just starting the process and doing it half-heartedly could result in higher cesarean section rates. And when we did a systematic review and we looked at uh, people that have tried this out in different settings, it was not the same. So the uh, in some settings, it it did result in uh, a decrease. And in some other settings, there was no difference. Um, the, the problem I have is that the minute the trial was was published, everybody rushed to adopt, to adopt it without even figuring out whether the system for an induction of labor was adequate, without even seeing whether they had the resources to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of births at 39 weeks, you know? So um, that was my... Um, yeah, that was my uh, uh, it, the reason I was a little upset with uh, the way it was uh, rolled out. So it it sounds <clears throat> excuse me, it sounds almost as if 
you know, there's a headline as a lot of the times, you know, there's a study now it makes headline media, you know, induction of labor at 39 weeks can reduce cesarean or study shows that it can, right. And it's rather than even actually like looking critically at the data, how the trial was conducted, you're saying that a lot of providers and, and hospital settings just adopted this as a, as a practice or, or sort of started offering um, more elective inductions, telling patients, oh, it's going to likely reduce your C-section risk. You should try this kind of thing without actually looking critically at a lot of the other factors that you mentioned. You're right. Uh, what happened in the U.S. was the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine came out with a statement within three days of the trial being published. Um, they were very, the, the, there was nothing wrong with the statement. What they said in their statement was, in a person who's having a baby for the first time with no other risk factors, if they they fulfill the same eligibility criteria as that in the trial, then uh, inducing might reduce. You know, so it was a very calculated statement. Um, but you know, when we read, we we read what we want to read and we interpret the way we want to interpret. Canada never came out with that statement. Canada still said that there is no reason we don't still believe the strong evidence to offer inductions. However, People were still, people were still doing it, right? So with we're based based on that uh, based on that uh, trial. So yeah, it's it's got a lot to do with what we read and how we interpret it, and um, yeah, and how we apply it. Mm -hmm. I had a, a doctor in Alabama who's a student of mine. Just a, she's not, a, she's, I think, a GP anyways. And she remembers saying, she's like, I got induced because I, I didn't want to see suction. And I thought this was just going to reduce it. And she ended up pushing for five hours, prolapse, the whole thing was very upset at the fact, looking back, you know, and, and of course it could have been so many factors, but just this, now this feeling of I was misled. And that's a narrative that she, she has shared with me that she contends with, right? Believing in science, you know, I believed in the science and you know, it's like, but did we actually look critically at it? And and was this the right decision for you at 35 mm -hmm. years old with this body mass index, so, so on and so forth, you know? This yeah, is juicy stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it's absolutely. It's it's all about, you know, um, it's about individualizing care. And you can't, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to, when you're seeing a person in front of you, when you've got your client or your patient in front of you, uh, just to put together all the everything about that person and and make a plan for that person and not just just um shove some some trial upon them and say well this is what works in general or this is what has worked somewhere else it's about making that plan and ultimately all of this evidence has to be taken in the light of a person's values and preferences and you know when somebody says listen i cannot take that that risk is too high for me or i'm willing to take that risk i don't think providers should try and impose their values upon them. It's about having the shared decision-making, understanding where the other person is coming from. The evidence is crucial. You can't not have the evidence, but the interpretation of the evidence and the extrapolation of that to a certain person's setting is something that we don't do well enough. So are you currently delivering babies, Dr. D'Souza? Because I think you're going to have a lineup out the door of listening here. <laughs> I want that oh, doctor. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. I, I still do. Um, uh, labor and delivery. Yes, I, I, uh, that's that's the mo that's the only clinical work that I do right now. I don't uh, have a clinic, um, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to try and 
put a whole system of obstetric surveillance in the country and, and have a clinical practice. Um, so I'm doing less and less and I'm not regretting it at all because I feel like this is important and this is this takes a lot of time trying to win the trust of of healthcare providers around the country and there are a lot of them to be able to share this data anonymously to convince them that something good is going to come out of this not just for patients but for them as well um uh, it, it's it's a lot of work so yeah I'm doing less and less I was actually born at McMaster so <laughs> with by forceps in the 80s oh, so there you go all right great place <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for your time today. I can't thank you enough. And I know this is going to be an episode that lives on for a very long time for many, many listeners, pregnant and not. So again, we're grateful for you and best of luck with everything you're doing. The world needs it. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for showcasing the this important work. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.